0: Oh, you guys are very responsive. Good. This is going to be good. Hey, uh, as Anthony said, my name is Ricardo. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, lead pastor in Redemption Tempe. Uh, Vince gave me the opportunity to come preach with you guys, which is uh, exciting for me, and at the same time kind of bittersweet because I have been here probably three or four times in the last five months, every time we get a chance to come up here, especially in the summertime, we do, and we get a chance to just kind of come in and not anybody know us and worship and, and so forth. But then he asked me to come preach for him, and, and I couldn't say no. Uh, and, uh, and he told me this. He says, I just want to make sure you bring it. And so I going to just gonna be clear with you guys, I don't know what Vince meant by that. And so <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do what I need to do. Sorry, I got this clock up here so I don't go forever. Uh, black preachers, we can, we can go. So... So uh, let me let me make sure that we uh, we're not here all day. We usually just say it's the spirit. <laughs> so let me just tell you a little bit about your pastor Vince real quick before I even get going Vince is a very 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 good friend of mine we are both from Southern California grew up in around the same area he's a little bit younger than I am uh, Vince was with us as a pastoral resident uh, much like Anthony is now in Tempe and Vince was by far the life of our staff and it was very sad to see him go uh, but just looking what God's doing here it's obviously it was something that God had a calling on his life and Verity's life and uh, my favorite moments of Vince First, The first one is, when we were coming up here on a vision trip to come up here and pray for an ideal of what would be a church, Vince and I wrestled before we came up here, which is not something I normally do. I'm um, not going to tell you who won, So, but we wrestled before we came up here, uh, my, which, which was just—so me and him both were injured because you, you just—grown people shouldn't be wrestling each other, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the second thing of Vince that absolutely just me and my wife love is there was, so Vince used to do called the, um, the scripture reading and Vince was outside talking, just being Vince and, and so forth and the band got done and there was a the greeting time and we're like, oh shoot, where's the scripture reader? Where's the scripture reader? Vince starts sprinting up down the aisle, runs on stage, gets up in front of the mic, starts talking and he's like, and then, and then the Lord, and, the, and he goes, sorry guys, I'm out of breath. I just ran up here. Best moment in our church's life. I could have sworn eight people got saved just off that. That's how good Vince, Vince, uh, that Vince was. Um, lastly, it's, it's, it's the moments of Vince, and it's not one moment. It's the moments of Vince. That Vince has a deep abiding relationship with Jesus. That if there's anything going on in my life or anyone of our, of a pastor's within redemption, Vince is the first one to shoot a text, to pick up a phone call and say, hey, just so you know, I'm praying for you. And there's a lot that we've been able to learn from you guys. The way that you guys pray for other congregations is absolutely a blessing because there's not a lot of churches that actually care about other churches, which is ridiculous because there's not a whole lot of Christians. And so why, like, separate different teams? And so the fact that you guys do that is is really incredible. So I do appreciate being with you guys. And so let me just kind of give you uh, an update on where we're going and just kind of like how I preach because me and Vince are a little different um, in, in our styles and so you're not caught off guard. Um, one is uh, I may say amen if something's true, right? And if you agree with it, you would say, amen. all right. And if you don't just sit there, that's cool. And then there's a, that, that, that's fine. The, the other thing is, so what we're looking at is somewhat of a familiar text, and we're talking about the cross, as you heard from the scripture reading, is that we're looking at the cross of Christ, and, and, and the cross of Christ is something that for many of you in this room who are Christian, and I get not everybody here is a follower of Christ, but you, you, you're, you understand that, or at least you've heard it. Even if you've never been to a church service before, you've heard that Jesus Christ died on the, on the cross, and sometimes that became, can become trivial, even though it's not. It can become familiar, and so we're, we're not used to it. And so what we pray for this morning is that God, by His Spirit, would be able to make that not only just relevant to our lives, uh, but ultimately to our entire world. And so let's take our emotion to this um, as we read about the tragic events in Paris and in, in France, as we, as we take about our own lives, as we think about the events that happened here um, at any you not too long ago that we, we come to this, this very significant moment in human history, right? So the cross is not an abstract deal. It's a real deal. And so we're going to look at that. But before we get there, I'm going to have to give you the broader story of how we get to this point in Mark. And so it's going to feel like this dude ain't even teaching on Mark, right? Because I'm going to start in Genesis. I promise you, we're going to get there, right? My old pastor used to say, I'm coming to your neighborhood. And every time, I'm coming to your neighborhood. We're going to get there soon, right? So I'm coming to your neighborhood. So don't think, oh, he's getting rid of Mark. We're going to get to Mark. But in order for us to be able to understand the cross and its historical and narrative setting, we've we got to be able to look back and see what God was up to, All right. All right. <laughs> Four of us, we're gonna get down on this. So, would you guys pray with me? Let's let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace, not that we just sing about, but we can experience through the death and resurrection of your Son Jesus. God, we thank you for the many blessings you give us. Um, God, I do lift up to you that school and that your favor and your presence and your kingdom would come there as it is in heaven, that you'd bless the teachers and staff there, that your work. Um, Lord, would be accomplished there. God, I thank you for this moment. As we gather as your people, God, many questions, many doubts, many pains, sorrows, highs, lows, God, that we would be able to to come to you in your word and through your spirit with all of who we are. And so, God, I pray that you would suspend this time, remove me, that we may see your son Jesus, God, and see him clearly, that our hearts, Lord, would be moved, that our lives would be ultimately changed, Lord, by the work of your son. God, help us to seek you, know you, um, as you seek us and you know us, and Lord, help us to be found in your son, Jesus, who is our righteousness. It's his name we pray. Amen. So, so a few weeks ago, or excuse me, a few days ago, um, I'm driving back from practice. Um, so I coach. Like sports teams like crazy. I love coaching little kids. Um, I, uh, I have I'm married, been married eight years, and we have two boys. We have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and they're playing baseball and football and, and so forth. And so I coach with one of my best friends, a guy I've known since we were in high school. Uh, we came to college together to go to ASU. We both played football together at ASU, and we both have two sons that are around the same age. And um, what I've noticed is recently, um, him and his wife have been, been going to church. They don't go to our church, which I don't know what that's all about. But anyways, they've been going to church. Right? right? And so I, I've been wanting to ask him, what happened? Because I've known this guy for a long time, and I'm like, what? We, we kind of had a two-year hiatus where we really weren't talking for whatever reason, N- no, no uh, drama or anything like that. We just weren't really talking. But then when our kids start playing sports, we had all these practices together, and then like dads were like, these dudes can't coach. We should coach. And so now we're coaching, and, and our kids hate it, but it's fun for us. And so that's, that's just, that's how dads do it. And so anyways, so I ask him, when did you guys start going to, to church? What, what happened? And so he start talking and telling me a story. And he goes, I'm not there yet, man. Like, he goes, I think Naomi's there, but I'm not there. I got all sorts of questions and so forth. And then he asked me this question. What happened to you? Like, what changed in your life? And so I didn't grow up... Uh, following Jesus. I did grow up going to church, but I never was a Christian. Um, I got to college, and I, and I always joke and say, I came to ASU to play football, not to be a student-athlete, right? They say, you're, I, wasn't, I was an athlete, not a student. My first semester GPA was a 0.67, right? Yeah, that's hard, right? You try to do that, right? And so, point so seven. you know, I, I ended up graduating. I finally got my mind right, and ironically, majored in education. Go figure. And then, <laughs> And um, by the end of my uh, time in college, I began to have these thoughts and questions about God and who Jesus was. So, so my buddy asked me, what happened? I said, do you remember our senior year? And I started describing where we were and what we were doing and, and what we were doing in football. And we had this really good year at the time. We were 5-0. and and we We're going to go back home to SoCal to play USC. It was 5-0. and And I just I had this moment where I'm in the study hall typing this paper. I was student teaching at the time in a second grade classroom. And it just kind of hit me like, man, am I a fraud? Like, am I, am I just doing this life and trying to be this nice guy when I got all these other things on the side? Like, am I, am I a fraud? And, and from there, just begin to tell him how from that point on for the next year, I believe God to do—I believe God began to do something unique in my life, right? He began to reveal things to me about myself, about who he was. And about from 2004 to 2005, some, some, some point, I don't know when it was, God opened up my eyes to be able to see him. And this was very um, weird because when you know somebody— and you're trying to tell them your story, or sometimes in Christian circles we call them our testimony, you, it's weird because they were there, right? Like, you know how testimonies go if you've been around church. Like, usually people tell you how bad they were. I was bad. I was, like, really bad. I stole ketchup, and, right? Whatever it is, right? <laughs> and then God saved me, right? It was like, and, then, and it's hard to tell somebody because they're like, yeah, I was there <laughs> with you, right? And so that was a difficult um, process, but he just wanted to know, like, when did you know, he said, but when did you know you were, you were a Christian? When did you know? I think it's an interesting question. But the question I have for us today is not when did we know, because usually those of us in this room who have a relationship with Jesus, we may go back to a period of time that we can remember when it became real for us. And we begin to talk about our life when, when, when God changed us, or whatever vernacular, whatever language we use. But the question I have is not when did, um, when did we know that we were in Christ, but when did Jesus know that he was going to die for us? That, that, that's been a question I've had for a while, even when I be, became a Christian. When did Jesus know? Was this an afterthought that God always knew that he was going to send his only child ultimately to die for the sin of the world? Like, when did he? know this. And so if you've been tracking with us in this series of Mark, you, you know we're at the point in the life where, where, where Jesus' is life, where he's about to die, right? So like today's the day that we learn and we hear about the death of Jesus. But what led up to this? And so for us to be able to understand, or even better yet, answer that question of when did God know, we have to go all the way back. And not just to the beginning of Mark, we have to go all the way back to the, ben- the beginning of Genesis, right? We can't just get to the cross and go the cross. We got to go all the way back, right? Think of it this way. You don't, you don't want to just see Mockingjay. You don't want to see that Katniss. You want to see H- Hunger Game Katniss first, right? Not, you know, the bottom of the barrel, like starting from the bottom now to the top, but, but Katniss style, right? So we got to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And here's what we see. Before there is a before. Before there is a beginning, there's God, And God, the God of the Bible, exists in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's what you know about this God. The Father is loving the Son. The Son is loving the Father and the Spirit. Three in one. And there's this beautiful picture that we read about, about God. Before he creates, he's God, right? It's kind of confusing sometimes to explain the Trinity, but it's this beautiful, perfect union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason why we start with God is because we need to understand that the story of the Bible is the subtext of a greater text, which is God. And to understand the Bible, to understand the cross, ultimately, we need to know who God is and why he does what he does, and why did he do what he did ultimately through the work of his son, Jesus. Now, part of it is how do we relate to this God? Because sometimes when we think of God, we think of him as a judge, right? Like he's this mighty judge and he's waiting for us to, to do something wrong so we can come into the courtroom and he can say, you did wrong and then you're, you're kind of done and, and, and he's just mighty and you have this picture of God, right? Um, or, or you have a picture of God like the divine, the divine police or something, right? Like you know that feeling if you're driving and a cop is behind you? Even though you haven't done anything you're like, uh-oh, tenant A, hey, uh, put it away. I have nothing to put away put it away anyway. Right? There's like, you just, you think you've done something wrong and it's like, he's behind me. I better drive better or slower or whatever it may be. And you have this picture, we have this picture of God that if I'm going to be a godly person, I better like, like stand up straight and speak correctly and, and so forth. And we have this picture of God, but think about it. If that's who God is, that means what salvation is, is ultimately like, like getting away with something. Like if you ever get pulled over, and, and you know you've been speeding. And the, and the officer comes to you and says, hey, you've been speeding. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go. Apparently, that happens to some people, right? Um, I'm going I'm to let you go. And then they let you go. Like, you don't, you don't relate to that cop. You don't, like, say, give me your name. I'm going I'm to write songs about you. For years, we're going to gather on Sundays. And we're, <laughs> we're going to eat donuts in remembrance of you, right? Like, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not what you do, Right? Or at best, the way we relate to God is we relate to God as a creator, right? This, this Flagstaff is a very creative community, and so to relate to God as a creator would be ideal, and he is a creator, that's true, and he is a judge, that, that's true. So when we look at creator, but here's the deal. God didn't become a creator until he created something. And so the question we have to ask is, what was God doing even before creation? And when you begin to see that, you see that God has always been a father and that Jesus has ultimately always been his son. And that means as a father, he's always been loving his son. And so the best way that we relate as we enter into the story of God is that he's a lover and that he's a self-giving lover. That the nature of the triune God is that they're constantly giving love to one another. And what God is ultimately best at is loving. And therefore, creation in itself, as we begin in Genesis, is an overflow of that love because God desires to share that infinite, perfect love that he has with the son, with us at the apex of his creation that he creates, everything else he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates man. He goes, this is all good. Something like that, right? At the apex of his creation, he creates man so that we could have this this union with God. And what you have is you have a union with heaven and earth and man is walking in the cool of the day with God. Things are the way they're supposed to be. But then man believes the lie that we've been believing ever since. And that is the lie of autonomy, that we can be a law unto ourselves that we can live our life best outside of the covering and lordship and protection of God, that we can do me better than anybody else. Like, let me do me, you do you, and we'll just kind of figure it out. And so since then, we rebel against God, and there's this separation between heaven and earth, and sin enters the world, and evil is in the world, and there's chaos and injustice, and everything in which we experience today, it had been a perfect time for God to say, I'm done. But he doesn't. He actually enters in even though we lose God. Hear this, in the fall, we did not just lose our ability to behave right. Like Christianity is not about us behaving right. We don't get to the cross. So Jesus says, I died on the cross so that you can behave right. Like you don't need the Holy Spirit to behave right. It's actually the right relationship with God. When I say we lost God, it's not that we lost ultimately our, um, we lost who he was or that we were looking for him, but we couldn't find him that something happened in our hearts that we actually wouldn't go looking for him. And yet, because this God has always been a loving father, and yet, because it was always his desire to share the same passion and love that he had for his son with us, our God continues to pursue. And we see this promise in Genesis 3.15, this embryonic picture of what God was going to do through for redemption is that as he's giving out the curses, he looks at the man and he says, you know what, when you work, there's going to be thorns and thistles. And he looks at the woman and he goes, check this out, this is going to be one. You're you're going to get pregnant and you're having a baby and it's going to be painful. And for those of you in this room who have ever given birth, you know what I mean. I asked my wife to do drugs when she did it. She didn't want to do it. I was like, take the drugs. She didn't want to do it, right? And so it's painful, it's labor. And he looks at the serpent and he says, here's here's the deal. And then Genesis 3.15, he says, there will be a seed the woman's seed. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And when you begin to look at that, there was this picture, ultimately, that God himself was going to work through humanity, and he was going to bring this seed, whoever this seed would be, and this seed would somehow stump out evil, stump out Satan, stump out chaos, stump out sin and death and murder. And all of the things that happen in this world that we experience in our culture and we experience in our own hearts, it says that this seed will come and provide a clean space that heaven and earth will be united again. And you begin to see this unfold. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, you you go to finally, you get to Genesis chapter 11 and there's a Tower of the Bible. Not the Bible. The Tower of the Bible. There was some weird drill they did in youth group. But then there was the Tower of Babel and, and then God stopped that. And then you begin this long plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man named Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham. Some of you guys might have heard of Abraham. They used to call him Father Abraham, and he had many sons, right? And, 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 and I'm one of them, and so are you, me too, right? So some of you guys who are laughing probably grew up in some youth group, and, and, and you heard that, right? And there was like a song you'd go to, it, like Father Abraham had many sons, yeah. The kids these days, though, they got you guys, man. I'm watching my little sons and them in the youth, in the, you know, the children's ministry. When they do Father Abraham, they're not like Father Abraham. They're like, Father Abraham, right? <laughs> they, they got this. They remixed it, right? They got the Father Abraham Nene nay in it, right? And so, so <laughs> y'all, y'all ain't ready. And so there's, there's, there's Father Abraham, and then God takes Abraham, and he says to him, he goes, now this is what I'm going to do. I'm gonna actually going to work through your family. And get this. This becomes gospel. And we know it's gospel because later in Galatians, Paul says that God preached the gospel through Abraham earlier, and he says, here's gospel. I'm going to work through your family, and through your family, I'm going to bless every other family, that those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And Abraham's like, I ain't even got a kid. And God's go, watch what I do. And over this, this miraculous time, God provides this baby, and you begin to see it is through this lineage that this seed continues to trace. And from there, God's people ultimately find themselves. They grow. Abraham has a kid, and the kid has a kid, and they got more kids, and they got more babies, and they got more babies, and aunties, and so forth. And all of a sudden, they're in Egypt, and they're in Egypt under the captivity of Pharaoh. And then God's like, this ain't, this ain't good. And he speaks to this man named Moses, and Moses is there in front of the burning bush, and the burning bush is God speaking to him. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And he goes, I don't know how to talk to Pharaoh. And he goes, take this rod right here, and I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go right? In, in God's voice, though, right? And, and, and he goes, and God uses Moses to free God's people, and then they're in wilderness for a while when God begins to give them his law, and then in the law, God begins to shape his people, and they finally get to the promised land, and they get to the promised land, and guess what they say? You know what we want? The other nations got a king, just like kids, right? You know when kids see other kids, like, oh, they got that, daddy, we want one of those. It's like, God, we want a king, and he's like, you don't want a king, because we want a king, and he says, all right, so he starts giving them kings, and he gives him this first king, and he's a bad king. And there's a succession of kings, and there's one good king. There there's a few good kings, but the best king was King David. And God spoke to David and said, it's actually through your lineage that there's going to be somebody who comes from you. The whispering of that seed, that he will come, and he's going to sit on the throne forever, that this seed will come. Well, during this time, God's people continued to rebel against him. Because just like me and you, they wanted autonomy. They wanted to do their own thing. And God raised up these people called prophets. And he told the, the prophets would tell him, like, listen, if you guys don't stop disobeying God, if you don't get things right, God is gonna allow another nation to come in and wipe us out of here and take us into captivity. Well the people continue to disobey God, and guess what? That's exactly what happened. And then they got to the time of the exiles. And if you're not familiar with that, this is the time of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and the Bendigo. In the church I grew up, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. And um, you all can't say that, though, because uh, the whole point was there's always one bad Negro uh, among, amongst the crew. Guess who that is today? So anyways, so there's, 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 there's Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego, and God began to purge the people of God at that moment. And they began to hear from the prophets of this one who would come and this kingdom that was to come. And they longed for this kingdom. And after the period of exile was over, God brought them back to Jerusalem, the promised land. And they rebuilt the temple, the place where they would worship God. But the glory of God wasn't there anymore. And for 400 years, there was silence. And during those 400 years, they begin to think, when is God going to bring this kingdom? When is this seed? When is is God going to bring about restoration and reconciliation? When is heaven going to be united with earth? There's just all of these thoughts that happen. And then you have the nativity story. And you hear about this baby. And you hear about this one who's Emmanuel, which we're going to celebrate here in just a few weeks, who was with us. And that gets us the mark. After 30 years, this baby grows up, and his name is Jesus, and he's the Son of God. And finally, his ministry starts in Mark chapter 1, if you guys can remember. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to get to Mark 15, I promise you. Mark chapter 1 starts off with Mark saying this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He starts off saying, just so everybody knows, this is the Son of God. And then Jesus begins this ministry as this king. And, and, and the first thing that he does, right, we see in the gospel of Mark, is that he's baptized. And he comes, and his cousin John is there, and he goes, oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he gets baptized, and after he's baptized, he comes out of the water, and it says there's a spirit, like, like, a, like a dove hovering, and then you have Jesus, obviously, the second person of the Trinity being baptized, and then you have the Father speaking, and he says, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. And I love that picture there. It's a beautiful picture of what we get to enter into in the gospel, because here's Jesus who hasn't done anything in his earthly ministry. And yet his dad is the crazy, happy soccer dad. Like that's my boy right there, right there. I'm well pleased with him. What did he do? Nothing. Right. But I'm well pleased with him. You know why that's a beautiful picture of the gospel? He says, if it's true that God loves his son that much and we enter in through Jesus, that means God becomes pleased with us no matter what it is that we've ever accomplished. It's never about a performance or anything else that we were in Christ that God looks at his sons and his daughters and he says, that's my boy, that's my girl. I'm well pleased with him. And Jesus flows from there. And he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And everything just unleashes from there. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He doesn't give any illustrations of what the kingdom is yet. He doesn't explain it. You know why? The, the, the people who are the original audience, they would have known what that is. So, so let, let, me, let me try to use this illustration. Um, so my senior year, we were getting ready to play University of Iowa, and they were undefeated and whatever. They were supposed to be good and, and um, a good team. Anyways. We were so yamped up. That's just football language for crazy, right? And, and we were, there was nothing like, you know, coaches come in and they give these pregame speeches and they usually just use a bunch of cuss words and you go out there and, and, and lose or whatever it is, right? And, and so this, our coach came in and I think he knew already that we were so anticipating this game that he walked in and he told everybody to stand up and he, and he was about to talk and he finally just said... It doesn't even have to be close. He said that, and it was like typical football. We all rushed out and whatever. And it wasn't close, so thank God for that. Um, The point was, we were already ready for it. He didn't have to say much. The Israelites at this time had heard about the kingdom, heard about the kingdom, heard about the kingdom, heard about the kingdom. So when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, everybody's ears perked up like, where? Like, where? Because they had different ideas about how this kingdom would happen. And there were four different groups that were talking about how the kingdom would be brought in. The first group were the Pharisees. And we talked about the Pharisees. They were like the religious haters. And the the Pharisees' ways of bringing in the kingdom was by essentially just religious separation. And then there were the group called the Essenes. And the Essenes were a group of Jewish people who said no by withdrawal. Let's withdraw from culture. Don't be a part of culture. Definitely don't have church where the preacher has to preach looking at signs of beer advertisements in the back, right? Like, don't do that. And, and, And separate. And then you have had this group of people called the Zealots. And the Zealots were people who were revolutionary, like people who wanted to do violence. Like we're going to take over Rome and whoever it is that has authority over us in the name of God. And they tried to do it that way. And then there were the, the group of people called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had a political compromise. Like we'll stay Jewish people, but also we'll get all the benefits from Rome. And that's how we're bringing the kingdom. And then Jesus comes in as this new king and he's like, it doesn't go down like that. He brings in this upside-down kingdom. And from Mark chapter 1, he begins to reveal himself as the Son of God. That first, he starts off by starting a kingdom. And if you're going to start off a kingdom, and you get to pick the best of the best to start a kingdom with, like, wouldn't we do something different than Jesus? Like, Jesus' first pick in the draft, he's like, ah, uh, fisherman. You're like, all right, okay, not sure where you were going with that one. Next pick, fisherman. <laughs> okay. Okay, Jesus, right? Next pick, fisherman. Next pick, fisherman. He goes, all right, I'm going to do something else. Tax collector, right? At this, and no one liked tax collectors, right? At this point, you're going, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, God, you should have sent the Spirit. <laughs> The sun ain't doing it right, right? He's picking the wrong team. That's just never going to work. And he shows us that his kingdom is completely not like the way we think. It's an upside-down kingdom. He begins healing people and showing forth himself, and he touches people who he's not supposed to touch like lepers. And then all of a sudden, the people, the religious leaders, they come to him after miracle after miracle. They go, okay, if you're God, show me a miracle. And he goes, oh, no miracles today no miracles today right he didn't fit in any other categories on one hand he was far too liberal for the conservatives of his day because he's hanging out with prostitutes and so they couldn't gig with him and then he was far too conservative for the liberals because he actually believed in the bible and authoritative scripture and he believed that there was a god and so forth so they didn't know what to do with them eventually they had to kill him they had to kill him and on his way to the cross he began to tell them hey the kingdom of god is not like you think it's like a mustard seed it's kind of small but then it grows Or or think of it like this way. He says, those of you guys who are well, you don't need me. I'm a physician. I come for those who acknowledge their sickness. And it's the marginalized. It's the broken. It's the lost. It's the outsiders. It's the one who didn't grow up in church. It's the people who don't understand when to set up, when to stand down. They don't know the stories, half the stories. They don't know. And somehow they're the ones who come to Jesus, and they're the ones who begin to understand a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like that Jesus himself begins to cast out demons. He says, in my kingdom, when heaven meets earth, there will be no demonic presence. He shows what the kingdom of God will be like. And towards the end of his life is when Jesus began to be alone, even though all the crowds were around him. And that leads us to the last three sermons. We have Jesus instituting what we will do today called communion, the Lord's Supper. And he looks at him, and he looks at one of them, and he says, do you know that one of you guys are gonna betray me? And we know who it's gonna be. And then he eats. And afterwards, they they sing a hymn, and he goes... And the rest of you guys will all fall away. And then Peter gets real bold, right? Peter's like, no, not me. All these other lames, they're going to fall away. Not me, Jesus, not me. Like, I'm a 100 down day one type dude. And Jesus was like, Peter, you're going to fall away. And then right after that, they go in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is is, is there sweating blood, and there's sorrow, and there's anguish. And he tells his boys, all I need you to do is just sit here and pray. And he goes back, and they're sleeping, right? Peter's like, I'm going to be here day one, day one. And he's sleeping, right? And then the guards show up, and Judas is there, and Judas betrays him with the kiss. And then Peter gets real bold, and Peter pulls out a sword, and, and he chops off the dude's ear, like, you know, and he gets real gangster with it, like, you know, he turns the sword like this, <laughs> right? And he chops off the ear, right? And Jesus is like, not in my kingdom, puts the ear, and he heals him. And then from there, they begin to take him. And last week, you guys heard about, they'd rather have Barabbas and Jesus instead of Jesus. Which leads us to this moment now where Jesus is completely all alone. Peter's denied him already. Judas has already turned his back on him. The disciples have already fled. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. This was something that God had planned before he created the world that this was never an afterthought for Jesus to be at the point of where he's at now. And it's not an afterthought for us to be in this room hearing about this Jesus. It's not a, oh, I just happened to get up this Sunday and come to this room. It's because there is something that God is doing in human history that, that continues to have its effects in our lives today. And it's this beautiful picture of the gospel of being good news, but it starts first with the bloody man who hung on a cross whose name is Jesus. That the story that we have with Jesus started before we were ever even born. That somehow God in himself and his love for us says, I love this world so much, knowing that they will sin against me, we already have a plan. There's no plan B here. Plan A is that God always loves, and he sent his son Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. Amen? We get to this point where this man Jesus, the God-man, the true king of the Jews, is treated now as a criminal. And so if you're with me in Mark chapter 15... We're going to start in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they, they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hell, the king of Jews. And they were, seeking, they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down, paying homage to him. And, when they heard, and then they mocked him and they stripped him of purple cloak Put his, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So here's Jesus now. He's taken by the battalion, and the battalion literally was 600 soldiers. There's that many people here. There's Jews and there's Romans there, and they're there ultimately to, to crucify Jesus, and they spit on him, and they beat him, and so forth. And then they take the crown of thorns, and they twist it, and they shove it on his head. And you've seen that picture before. That, that Jesus is now being humiliated, and they're spitting on him, and they're kind of mocking him. And when they put the cloak on him, it's like, oh, yeah, you're the king, right? Oh, hell, king of the Jews. Like, you're yeah, right. Look at you. You're, you're busted, and you're beaten. And that's the picture that we have of our Savior here. And then Mark continues in the story. After they say they're looking to crucify him, it says, And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country of the, fa- the the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross? And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine and mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among him, casting lots for them, and they, de- they de- to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So, so in that day. Crucifixion, they would have a man with a, a horizontal bar on his back. And they would have that man carry it all the way up to where the vertical bar would be. And they'd put him on there. But Jesus had been up all night. He had been beaten, that he couldn't even carry it anymore. And so they take this man, Simon, who's there from the country, who is just a guy. And I love what Mark does. He goes, he's the father of Andrew and Rufus, which actually we hear about in Romans because letting us know that as Jesus said that we need to pick up our own cross, the first person to pick up actually Jesus Christ, literally, was this man named Simon. And so he carries Jesus' cross with them up to this place and they continue to humiliate him and they take his clothes. Because, you know, when you were crucified, you were crucified naked. It was just a public humiliation and they take Jesus here in this morning to crucify him. And, and, and you, you have here that they begin to cast lots of his clothes, which is reminiscing of what we read about in the Psalms of the prophecy that this would happen. And continue in here in verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, "The king of the Jews." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him with one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So this picture here now of their continuing mocking of Jesus, they, they would put an inscription up there for the people who were crucified. These, these men, these, these prisoners, these, these men that were being essentially put to death, and they would have whatever their charge was. Jesus' charge was he claimed to be the king of the Jews. The irony is he was the king of the Jews, that act, he actually was who he said he was. That, that this picture here, you have the religious leaders, the scribes and the, the high priests, the people who searched the scriptures, the scribes were professional Bible readers and studiers, and yet they missed it. That that whole front half that I gave you of this seed, they missed it. That God's promise to enter in and work within human history, they missed it. That the hope of salvation in the world was right before them, and they were mocking him. Oh, he can save others, but he cannot save himself. And yet Jesus, as prophesied, was silent here, taking it, taking it. When it comes to the cross, hear me, I don't think we really understand the cross, right? Like in the Roman day, the cross was something that was not celebrated, right? It, It wasn't something that people were like proud of. Even Roman citizens, they weren't proud of the fact that they did this thing called crucifixion, that they would take people and they would crucify them before all people, That that usually they would take people who would rebel against Rome and they would say to them, ultimately, everybody else, this is what will happen to you if you try to take over Rome. And since this man says he's a king, there's one king and his name is Caesar. And Jesus actually came as the true king of the world. You see, many of us, we think of the cross like something we get around our neck, right? Maybe a tattoo we get. But think think about the horrific nature of the cross. Like most of us wouldn't get like the electric chair around our neck, like, ooh, where'd you get that? That looks good, girl, <laughs> right? We, 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 would, we would never do that. And yet that, that was to them that day. And yet when we look at the New Testament, because they look through the lens of the resurrection, they begin to see that the cross was, was powerful, that the cross actually meant sacrifice, that Jesus truly was the sacrificial lamb who took away the sin of the world, that it meant a representative, that Jesus represented all of humanity who would trust in him and that he would absorb in himself the sin of the world. That we begin to see the cross and we see victory. That we, like the people of um, of Israel that were in Egypt, that we were slaves from the ultimate captivity of sin, Satan, and death. That in Christ there is true liberation, there is true freedom. And so when we're free, we're free in Christ Jesus. And so the cross does become this beautiful symbol for us because our Savior hung and died literally, that He is hanging in between heaven and earth to, through His death, reconcile heaven and earth. That we ourselves may be able to enter into the life of God ultimately through. His son, Jesus. And finally, Mark records Jesus' last words. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme Sebaphani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and then put a reed on it. And they gave him, a, gave him a drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. The, there's this picture that we have here of Jesus being on the cross now and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he doesn't say father. Interesting. Every other time in scripture, Jesus talks to him as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago when we went through the garden, Jesus had this moment where he prays to his father and he says, I got this cup. And if there's any other way that we can reconcile things and heal the world, can we do that way? But nevertheless, not as I will, but what you will. And that cup that he was talking about was this cup of wrath, the wrath of God, the justice of God towards our sin and that Jesus would absorb and that he would drink every single ounce now on the cross, Jesus is experiencing total separation that we deserve from God. Even, even though we are born in this world as sinners and we're separated from God, we cannot experience what Jesus is experiencing here because what we have now is the opportunity, even as sinners, to enter into relationship with him. What Jesus was experiencing was the total eternal separation of God of all of us that we will never have to experience because of Jesus. That Jesus is this ultimate death substitute for us here in this moment. And he's physically experiencing it. He's spiritually experiencing it. And then he cries out the thing that we all cry out, whether you believe in God or not. Why? Why? We, we got to bring it down to even our, our, own, our own times, right? You, you wake up and, and, and you read the things that we've been reading and you watch on the news the things that we've been seeing, what's happening in other countries, what's happening in France, and you you have to think, why? You have to read these things and go, why? If you have had any experience of suffering— If you've had an experience where you've been pregnant and you've lost a child, you've been in a family and you thought they were going to be with you forever and they've walked out on you, any experience of suffering, you have to ask why. Whether you're the most devout Christian or never you trusted in God or not. And we see Jesus right now saying, God, why? Why? And usually this is something that people honestly say, this is why I can't do Christianity. I can't believe in a God that, that would allow such suffering. And let me just tell you this. The Bible doesn't give us an answer, a complete answer of why God continues to allow suffering. I don't have one for you. And I've read this thing, and I, I, love, the, I love this thing because of what it reveals about God. It doesn't give us all the answers. It doesn't give us all the answers. It doesn't tell us why. We can make some, 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 maybe some educated guesses, but it doesn't tell us why. However, what it does give us, that no ideology, no philosophy, no other religion gives us, is that we have a God who actually is not exempt from suffering. That what we see in Jesus is... Jesus suffers. Well, one of my biggest things with Christianity growing up was a religion that accepted slavery. As an African American man growing up in an African American family, that a religion that would accept suffering, or excuse me, slavery, made no sense to me. And I grew up in a very pro-black family, that in my household we had pictures of slaves on the boat. We had pictures of people being whipped in the back. We had all of these things. And so these were vivid, vivid Im- imagery, images for me growing up. And how, how could this be, how this could be a religion of people, right? And then you begin to study the cross. And you realize, man, Jesus does not only just stand in solidarity with people, he literally is hanging in so- solidarity. That Jesus himself was lynched. That Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is not exempt from suffering. He, he not only suffers for us, but what we see is Jesus actually suffers with us. That we can never look at God and say, He has no idea. In fact, we have a God who we can look at and say, He knows exactly what I'm going through. That we can look at a, a God who knows what it's like to have his family turn his back on him. We can look at a God who knows what it's like to have fam- friends walk out on him. That we can look at a God who's been humiliated, who's been betrayed. By his closest friends, we can look look at a God who understands all of that, who's had his body manipulated. We can look at him and go, Jesus Christ actually is for me, that he put on flesh, that God himself, not as an afterthought, and he would do this ultimately because he loves me. And to, to answer the question, why did God forsake him? So that he would never have to forsake us. That every single one of us would never have to ask the question, not necessarily why is this happening. We can ask that, but we can never say, God is not with me. You can see on the cross that God promises through his son Jesus to be with us. He will never leave us, nor forsake us. Amen? Amen? And so we can take all of our emotion, all of our frustration, all of our joys, and we can bring it to the foot of the cross, and there we see the God-man himself, the true king, suffering for his people. Well, after this happens and, and Jesus gives his life, these two profound implications happen here. And the first is 38. And it says the curtain of the temple was torn from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, here's why that's important. The temple tearing represented something. The temple was a place where you had to go to meet God. Like you couldn't just pray to God anywhere. Like you were supposed to meet him there. And that was a place of sacrifices. And within the temple, there was a special place within the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And you could never go in there. Only the high priest can go in there. And even only once a year in Yom Kippur, which is known as the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, he would have to sacrifice blood for his own sin. He would have to sacrifice the animal for the blood of the people. And then he can go into this curtain and meet with God. And and there had to be a sacrifice that would happen. And there was not um, access to God. So there was incest in um, in that settlement. There was not access to God. Can't say that word right now, right? Like, he could not—we could not get to God other than through sacrifice. And when Jesus was sacrificed, the curtain in itself, not by the hands of man, but by God, was torn. And that symbol was there is that now God is accessible. And that anybody who would want to meet with God, and that any person who would want to know God— that anyone who would want to be in the family of God, that anyone who would want to experience the grace and forgiveness and mercy and love of God, that anyone who wanted a true father that would always be there with them and for them, anybody who wanted that would have access through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then you have this statement of the centurion. He says this. Once he sees Jesus dying, he says, "'Truly, this man was a Son of God.'" Now, why is that interesting? Why is that interesting? Why is that profound? because no one in their right mind has claimed Jesus to be Jesus so far. Like Peter said he was, and then he denied him. All the demons, by the way, the demons were the only ones who got it right so far in Mark. If you've been, tra- the demons were like, that's God. And Jesus was like, shut up. All right, we got it, right? <laughs> like the only people who know is Mark, the narrator. At the very beginning, he goes, Jesus, the son of God. Like I'm telling you guys who this is. And as the story goes on, no one really knows. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's this, maybe he's this. And finally, this hardened soldier, who has murdered many people and has crucified many people, who's who's hard. He looks at him and goes, truly, this was the Son of God. And what's profound about that is if you were the original audience of Mark's people living in Rome, many of them Roman citizens, there's a picture of Mark is trying to tell them, if this man, why not you? That what Jesus has done on the cross is he is reconciling sinners to God of every nation and every tribe, everything that God had promised through Abraham, every nation, every tribe can enter into through God, but to know God, to know him. And the, the, the reason why this is profound, it's, it's access to know him. So, so back to my story, when it comes to the cross, so I'm telling my buddy RJ and I said, Here, here's the deal, man. I figured out there was a void or something missing in my life. And I've heard Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. But something happened for me for the first time. I believed that I was a sinner. And I actually believed that I couldn't reconcile myself to God. And this lady, out of nowhere, this old lady came to me. And, and for whatever reason, she felt like she needed to share the gospel with me. She said, son, do you know God? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah. And she goes, do you really know him? Like, do you know him? And I said, maybe not. And she goes, let me just tell you this. And she spoke to my life. She said, let me just tell you what God did. He sent his son over 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for you. And when he died on the cross for you, he accomplished something. And that is every sin that you've ever committed or you will commit, he's already forgiven you for. And I said, why would he ever do that? She said these simple words, because he loves you. <laughs> because he loves you. That's it. There's no trick. There's no bait and switch there. It's because he loves you. And if you love him, you enter into that relationship with him. My life was significantly changed from that. It was as simple as that. I've never seen that lady since. It was literally a lady that came up to me and gave me the greatest news ever. The same thing Mark has given this church and the same thing Mark is giving us, that the greatest news ever is that God himself had thought about us before the world was even created, knowing our rebellion and sin, that he would send his son Jesus that we may know him and that everything and every sin that we've ever committed, past, present, and future, that he would forgive us for this reason, because he loves us. He loves us. Like, he loves us not because of something we can do for him, not because of what we can bring to him. He loves us because he loves us, right? And there's really, <laughs> there's really nothing better than that. <laughs> there's just really nothing better than that. And so as we, as we close this morning and thinking of the cross of Christ, and we're going to come back next week and celebrate the resurrection, and, and we're actually going to do it again a few months later for Easter, <laughs> But the most beautiful news ever is that God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. And so, to answer the question of when did God know? He knew from the foundation of this world. And it's through his patience and his kindness that is meant for us to lead us to repentance. Amen? I, I want to close by reading um, my favorite poem here. Um, and it's called When I Became a Christian. And it's by this guy by the name of Adrian Pless. And, um, and I'll close with this. So when I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I will suffer in this world of shame and sin. And he said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? And I said, amen, I think. I think, amen, I think, amen, I, I think I say, amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say that my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say, amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said. You could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do do you still want to follow me? And I said amen a bit. A bit amen, a bit amen, a bit I say amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say that I could be put up with sneers and scorns and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up. I say amen Mm, in a bit. Well, I stepped back and I thought a while. And I tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, the good book says that Christians live in joy. And he says that's true. You'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? And I said, amen. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord. I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes. I, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me. A quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but, the, but every single bit. And I said, I'm very sorry, Lord. I'd like to follow you, but I quit. He says, I'm very sorry, Lord. I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a very, man, a very manly thing to do. He said, well, forget religion then and think about my son. And tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need? Are you man enough to go? Are you man enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the things that people hate to hear and battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it to the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue? Are you man enough to cry? And when the nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Are you man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? And are you man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I'll ask you again. And then I said, Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. I said, oh, Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Let's pray. God, you are in the business of reconciling and restoring heaven and earth. And for reasons unknown to us, the only way that that was possible was that you yourself would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That the only way that you would get rid of evil and injustice and sin and decay and darkness and not get rid of us was to send your son Jesus as a substitute and as a sacrifice for us. God, we only enter in, Lord, through this long story of redemption by faith and the faith that we have is very small, and your word is so comforting that it just needs to be like a mustard seed. And so, Lord, we, with very mustard seed-like faith, we enter in with thanksgiving. We enter in with praises. We enter in with gratitude. We enter into understanding, Lord, that the cross of your Son, Jesus, has set us free. Lord, we ask that that message, that promise that you never leave us nor forsake us, that our sins are spread apart as far, to, far as, as the east is from the west, that we would be able to love you and follow you and trust you all the days of our life and everything that we do. Father, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before I